Well, at least he didn't say. Well, I'm not sure I would think Johnson, of Johnson quite as a playwright so much as a mask writer. <laughs> okay. Um, Thursus? Spirit. Mm. Yeah. Spirit, yes. Got it. Oh, were you guessing? <laughs> totally. Spiritual attendant, nice. Um, uh, good. Um, what happens if you... What is Nepenthe? Isn't it a drunk? Turns your head into an animal? Mm-hmm. See, I didn't know whether it was that one or the one that was offered to the lady to lower her inhibitions. Yeah, yeah I thought better. it was the day it's a, yeah. yeah, it's the same. Okay. No, but I said, surely there must be a difference. No, don't be, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. <laughs> We're talking about okay. allegory here. You turn into an animal um, allegorically by by um, giving yourself over to brute sexuality. So I'm right, but the thing is, I didn't know I was right. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> okay, so let me just right. mark that that's wrong. Fake. That's oh, no, fake that's right. my favorite kind of right. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so that was three and four. Um, um, who gets paralyzed? The lady. the lady. Okay. Who is most like Archimago? Comus. Okay, so because that's when you asked your question. Was anyone thinking of anyone else as being like Archimago? I would say Milton himself. <laughs> <laughs> but no one wrote that, right? Maybe the spirit because... Okay, forget it. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Bernard Shaw. That's very good. Uh, <laughs> um, a playwright Lollegro likes? Ben Johnson and Shakespeare. Yes, Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Johnson. Um, that's his idea of a good time. And it's a good idea of a good time. That is a good time. Yeah. And, and, it's a, and it's a very good time. Okay, let's finish up with Lycidas, if we possibly can. Um, one is never finished with Lycidas. You will discover this as um, your lives progress, um, but at least provisionally. Um, so St. Peter comes and basically says it's really bad that Lycidas has died because he's the one good guy on earth, not like everyone else. Um, and... Um, <coughs> If you look at the long subtitle or the long description of the poem right right after its title, um, that goes, in this monody, um, the, the author, uh, monody is a, essentially a poem by, by one voice, a song by one voice. In this monody, um, the author bewails a learned friend unfortunately drowned in his passage from Chester on the Irish Seas, 1637, and by occasion foretells the ruin of our corrupted clergy then in their height. So um, that's the occasion that we've just read. The ruin of the corrupted clergy is um, St. Peter saying, Lycidas is dead, that really stinks, it makes me realize how bad all the people who are in the clergy are right now, and they're going to get their comeuppance. Is this before or after presbyters, but priests writ large? Um, before. Before, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, New Presbyter is a priest writ large. Um, But it is Milton um, declaring himself as against Laud and against the um, Anglican Church, um, which he saw as as becoming as corrupt as... The Catholic um, Church? Yeah, as Spencer saw the Catholic Church as being. Um, 
then St. Peter stops speaking. He's, he's another voice who's spoken. And the shepherd speaks to the river again, Alf, the sacred river, as Coleridge will call it. Return, Alphaeus, the dread voice is past that shrunk thy streams. So St. Peter made that stream shrink up in fear, um, partly in fear because it's the coming of Christianity. That is, St. Peter is the Christian um, figure where, where um, uh, Apollo and um, Amaryllis and the Muses and so on are pagan figures. So Christianity is dis displacing um, pagan religion, pagan ideas. Um, that is going to be an issue in Milton, a theme in Milton, but also an issue in Milton um, to the very end. That is to say, what you will see in Paradise Lost is that what he's doing is writing an epic which is in the line of the um, classical epics. Uh, he compares himself explicitly to Homer um, and sees himself as doing um, what Homer has done. Um, but he's telling a Christian story. And he, in Paradise Lost, he gives an account of the relation of classical mythology, Egyptian and Greek and Roman um, mythology, to Christianity. And he sees um, th those mythological <clears throat> stories as, in fact, corruptions of the true story, which you can find in Genesis. Um, that's going to be the way um, classical mythology and, and um, Hebrew and Christian <coughs> storytelling are brought together into a single story in Paradise Lost. But you can see he's already doing this in Lycidas. Um, he's also doing it in Comus, where the idea in Comus is that you get the, the evil figure in Comus, Comus himself, is the son of a figure from the Odyssey, Circe. Um, and the lady is nevertheless, her virtue, her moral virtue is a Christian virtue, the virtue of chastity. Spencer has already done this. This is not new in Milton's part. But Milton is here explicitly in Lycidas, staging a confrontation between classical mythology, Alphaeus and Arethus and all the rivers sacred to the classical muses, a confrontation between those and another figure of water, the pilot of the Galilean lake, St. Peter. Um, and um, so, so water is what counts because Lycidas drowns. Mm -hmm. and there are different spirits of water and the spirits of water some are from classical and some are from um, Christian um, traditions and they, they are explicitly uneasy with each other and the poem is partly about why it's okay to go to a classical um, uh, tradition to talk about, even by occasion, to talk about Christian issues. So return, Alphaeus, the shepherd says. The dread voice is past the trunk thy streams, return, Sicilian muse, and call the veils, and bid them hither cast their bells and flowerets of a thousand hues, ye valleys low where the mild whispers use of shades and wanton winds and gushing brooks, on whose fresh lap the swart star sparely looks. It's shady there. Um, 
Throw hither all your quaint enameled eyes that on the green turf suck the honeyed showers and purple all the ground with vernal flowers. Bring the wraith primrose that forsaken dies, the tufted croto and pale jessamine, the white pink and the pansy freaked with jet, the golden violet, the muskrose, and the well-attired woodbine, with cowslips wan that hang the pensive head, and every flower that sad embroidery wears. Bid amaranthus all his beauty shed, and daffodillies fill their cups with tears, to strew the laureate hearse where Lycid lies. So he's calling... He's gives, he gives um, one of the most remarkable catalogs of flowers in English literature here. Um, do people remember an earlier catalog of flowers that um, L'Allegro, yeah. I was going to say Ophelia. Yes, in a playwright whom L'Allegro likes. Is. Also, The Midsummer Night's Dream, that particular, the Eglantine passage. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, so the idea is we go to a kind of surface. The catalog of flowers, it's almost like embroidery. It's almost like a tapestry. Um, it's what Ophelia brings to uh, Polonius's death. There, um, there's rue, that's for remembrance. There are violets. Um, and um, the idea of flowers covering the fact of death um, is an idea that, that, again, is a powerful one. Um, one that goes way back, and um, it's an acknowledgement of death by using something beautiful, namely the flowers. Um, Shelley will call this adorning the coming bulk of death. Um, Keats was very famous for his flower catalogs, all the flowers that the gardener fancy fanes, whom breeding once will never breed the same. Um, Keith is actually getting that out of the Garden of Adonis. Um, but the idea of flowers is they don't live long, we know they're ephemeral, but they are beautiful, and you can use their beauty to cover the fact of death, even as they represent it. And something like that is going on here. And the flowers come from the mythological beings. Um, Alpheus call the veils and bid them hither cast their bells and flowerets of a thousand hues. So it's as though classical mythology is like flowers. It's beautiful. It's beautiful ornament for truth. But the ornament isn't simply ornament. As ornament, it serves a function. That is, it's the standard opposition is an opposition between um, functional and ornamental elements of any art. Um, if you know uh, brutalist or modern Bauhaus architecture, um, there was a strict um, refusal of ornament. Form had to follow function. But ornaments have a function. That's what Milton is saying here. Um, and the function is a function of protecting you from the brutal truth, even as they represent the truth they protect you from, the ephemerality of flowers representing that truth. And for Milton, that also means mythology does that. Um, this is Milton's version of allegory as um, the as the cloudy um, uh, thing that embosoms the truth. 
and is effective because of its beauty, but nevertheless represents the truth. So there are all these flowers, and he says, let them all strew the laureate hearse. So Lycidas will have his hearse covered with laurels. The laureate hearse where Lycid lies. Notice now it seems to be um, high spring. It's no longer so early where the um, berries are harsh and crude, but it seems to be high spring here. Um, and it's almost as though the poet's imagination has summoned all these things into being. First the voices, um, all the people who come to explain to him why Lycidas is, um, why it's not their fault that Lycidas has died, um, and now he calls upon the river to um, uh, swell again and to call upon all these flowers to come. And the list of flowers substitutes for the fact that it's very late winter or early spring when the poem starts. Um, Vino, you were going to say something? No. Okay. I was just holding it. I was just uh, leaning on my... <laughs> all right, so... Um, let them all strew the laureate hearse where licit lies. For so to interpose a little ease, let our frail thoughts dally with false surmise. What's the false surmise there? Yeah. What? <laughs> Pretending that it's not true, he hasn't died. Well, no, there, the hearse would be there to okay. strew the laureate hearse where licit lies. He isn't a hearse. Mm. He is. The fl that the flowers are... They're, like, ornamenting the death. Okay, but what's false about that? They die. Yeah, but what's the false surmise? What is he imagining but falsely doing so? Is it not that Lycidas is not dead? I don't think so. Okay. Hmm. I think, but I think you're tempted to think so. Is it oh. the flowers are mourning? Um, could be. Because he talks about like daffodils, you know, being filled with tears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, all of that is Ovidian. That is the idea of seeing the flowers as what they are, as formed as they are for a reason. That reason being grief for Lycidas. So that could be a false surmise. Steve, were you going to say something? Um, ben. No. Just, like I'm mulling around with something that's not. All right, let's go on to find out what it is. For so to interpose a little ease, let our frail thoughts dally with false surmise. I me, whilst the the shores and sounding seas wash oh, far I, away. Mm -hmm. What? That they have found the body, but obviously the body was never found. Right. Oh. So the idea is let's dally with false surmise, which immediately will be that life has defeated death. But <coughs> it turns out that the um, way that you surmise that Lycidas isn't really dead, although that's not what you're surmising, but the way the poem does that through its form, that is, that he's dead, but let us for a moment imagine something that's untrue, the structure of that is, so let's imagine that he's alive. 
However, the content isn't what the structure implies. The content is, let us imagine that his body was found. And that would interpose a little ease, because then at least we could give him proper burial with flowers. Then we could do what Ophelia does for Polonius before she drowns. Um, he's certainly thinking of Hamlet here, and he's thir- thinking of drowned Ophelia. Um, but we can't. It would be nice to think that his body was here. Now, if he said that explicitly, people might say, well, no, it wouldn't. Um, why would you want his body here? Um, why would that be something that would make you happy? But, you know, it's better than that he be lost forever. Um, bodies are returned. They are, if, if a body's lost, you try to find it to give it a good burial. Um, so it's not meaningless. But structurally in the poem, it seems to be a fantasy, not that Lycidas's body was saved, but that Lycidas is still alive. However, its content is um, that it's a fantasy that his body is here and that we construe his hearse with flowers. We can't. But that allows the poem to do some work. And the work that it does is to change its attitude towards Lycidas' death, which is, but Lycidas isn't here. That's the, that's the low point of the poem after the start. That's a local minimum, as we put it. Um, because he isn't here, and I have to realize that this was false surmise. I, me, he mourns again. Whilst thee the shores and sounding seas wash far away, where air thy bones are hurled, whether beyond the stormy Hebrides, way north of Scotland, where thou perhaps under the whelming tide visits the bottom of the monstrous world, Again, be thinking Spencer always. Or whether thou to our moist vows denied sleepst by the fable of Belarus old off Cornwall, where the great vision of the guarded mount looks towards Namancos and Bayona's hold. So there is um, a mountain which is said to represent St. Michael who is looking southward. That's the great vision of the guarded mount, looking southward toward the Mancos and Bayona's hold. Look homeward, angel. So don't look south, look homeward, angel, now. And melt with Ruth. Mourn for the death of Lycidas. And O oh, ye dolphins, waft the helpless, the hapless youth. So now... He doesn't know where Lycidas is. And he thinks of everything you can see from Britain. And thinks Lycidas can be anywhere. The whole place is the place where he is lost. The world is a world in which Lycidas is lost. If he were here, if his body were here, if he weren't lost, then the only place for Lycidas would be here, now, in this vale, where we used to bring our sheep together. But since he is lost, he could be anywhere. And the whole realm of his loss is everywhere, whereas the realm of where he could be is only somewhere, namely here, the single point. 
And that allows for the turn that occurs now, where we go from what is Weep No More echoing earlier in the poem? Yet once more. Yet once more. So now you can, so now the poem has affected a turn from yet once more to weep no more. Weep no more, woeful shepherds, weep no more. First he's complaining that no one is weeping. Now he's saying you can stop. And the question is why? How do you get from line 164 to line 165? Weep no more, woeful shepherds, weep no more. For Lycidas, your sorrow is not dead, sunk though he be beneath the watery floor. So sinks the day star in the ocean bed. What does that mean? What's the day star? The sun. The sun. Yeah. So Lycidas is now, because his loss is spread out over the whole world or over all the oceans, over the whole boundary of the world, the whole boundary of Britain, it's as though the image that you have of him now is of the sun, not of a body that you have to cover with flowers, but of someone who's distributed around the whole world, like a spirit. He's etherealized. His loss becomes re-understood, re-felt, re-metaphored as an etherealization. So he's like the sun setting, setting everywhere and disappearing everywhere, but the sun will return. So weep no more, woeful shepherds, weep no more, for Lycidas your sorrow is not dead, sunk though he be beneath the watery floor. So sinks the day star in the ocean bed, and yet anon repairs his drooping head and tricks his beams, and with new spangled oar, flames in the forehead of the morning sky. So Lycidas sunk low, but mounted high through the dear might of him that walked the waves. Who's that? Jesus. The other son. The other son, the S O N son, um, who walks the waves. Um, that Lycidas has sunk beneath. But since the might of him who walks the waves saves the virtuous, um, sinking beneath the water is also now allows for a different way of thinking of water. Ocean floor. That doesn't mean, by the way, what we would mean in, in current oceanography, that is, the, the land under the ocean. It means the surface of the ocean. Um, that's what Lycidas sinks beneath. But it is a floor, and you can walk upon it if you're Jesus, or if Jesus tells you how to. It's also a form of baptism. Yeah. Okay, good. Nice. Um, so, although he sunk, he, through the dear might of him that walked the waves, will be mounted high where other groves and other streams along with nectar pure his oozy locks he laves. So he washes his hair, his locks, with other groves and other streams. That is the groves and streams of heaven. If you can't find him on earth, there's only one place he must be, which is heaven. And he hears the unexpressive, that is inexpressible, nuptial song in the blessed kingdoms, meek of joy and love, 
There entertain him all the saints above and solemn troops and sweet societies that sing and singing in their glory move and wipe the tears forever from his eyes. So who's Lycidas being compared to now in Spencer? Wiping the tears forever might sound like he'll never cry again, but I think the line actually sounds more like he's always crying and <coughs> his eyes are, all, are forever being wiped. Adonis. Um, Adonis. Yeah, Lycidas has become an Adonis-like figure, but in heaven. So he drowns, he's brought to heaven, and he has constant, continual comfort and consolation and cleansing and succor there. Now, Lycidas, the shepherds weep no more. So now he actually can address the absent Lycidas up in heaven. Now, Lycidas, we know where you are. And so he can speak to Lycidas directly. Now, Lycidas, the shepherds weep no more. Henceforth thou art the genius of the shore. That is the spirit of the shore, the spirit of those who will protect those who go to sea. In thy large recompense, and shalt be good to all that wander in that perilous flood. So he has become a guardian angel to all those who go sailing. And then the huge surprise in this poem. Thus sang the uncouth swain to the oaks and rills. So what's the surprise there? Yeah, that this whole thing, if this were um, written in the 18th or 19th century, it would all be in quotation marks. The whole thing is what the shepherds sang and not a poem written in propria persona. And that's um, a pretty interesting turn at the very end. One that um, there are many, many different ways to think about and one that it's really worth thinking about. But the least that you can say, just look at the little bit of narrative that you get at the very end Remember, what the shepherd has been doing is talking to various people who show up out of nowhere to speak to him. St. Peter, Camus, um, the nymphs, Apollo. Um, but now it turns out that he himself has been a speaking voice within the poem. Not the voice of the poem itself, but a voice that speaks within the poem. And the question is, what is the relation of the actual narrator of this poem, Milton, let's say, and the shepherd who speaks it. If you've read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, um, how many people have read it? So you'll remember that Stephen Dedalus has a theory of three stages of art, um, which go from lyric to dramatic to epic. And in the epic stage, the artist is himself um, completely removed from the work of art. Um, Stephen compares it to he's simply doing his, paring his fingernails while the work goes on. Um, is in, becomes inscrutable. The lyric is the voice of personal expression and the epic is the voice of um, inscrutable presentation. And he may have been thinking of this moment. If you've read Ulysses, has anyone read or started Ulysses? 
Do you remember the lesson that Stephen teaches in chapter 3 of Ulysses? No, chapter 2. He goes off to teach school. That's when he gets paid um, by the English schoolmaster. Um, it's, uh, it has one of, one of Joyce's epiphanies. Someone had loved him, had um, nursed his weak, watery blood with her own, a kid with an ink stain on his face. Do you remember what the lesson that he's teaching that day is? Lysidus. Um, and uh, <coughs> what he says is um, he has a boy recite it. Um, and the boy gets to a line and then pauses. Um, he's supposed to have it memorized. You guys. Um, and he gets to a line and pauses and then Stephen says, turn over, I don't see anything. Um, and the boy kind of coughs and says, what, sir? But in the meantime, he's turning the page under his desk. Um, so it's quite likely that Milton's, th that Milton's, that Stephen's theory of art is partly derived from Lycidas. So here we get a speaker who is oddly unconcerned with Lycidas. Thus sang the uncouth swain to the oaks and rills, while the still morn went out with sandals gray. He touched the tender stops of various quills with eager thought, warbling his Doric lay. And now the sun had stretched out all the hills, and now was dropped into the western bay. At last he rose and twitched his mantle blue, tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. So I think the thing to understand about that is to understand that Milton himself is describing the psychology of elegy. It is a psychology of elegy that contains within it an elegy. But what he's interested in is how the uncouth swain um, recovers from the death of Lycidas, how he works it through in elegy, and then there's nothing about Lycidas in those last eight lines, but only about the uncouth swain who sung the elegy and how he kind of forgets his own sorrow in the work of composition, in the work of um, going through the elegy. So it's an idea of working through. It's an idea of mourning and of expressing grief as a way of working through grief. And Milton himself is presenting a character who does that. Um, when the uncouth swain says, so may someone pass my urn, and as he passes turn and bid fair peace to be my sable shroud, the elegist, the swain, is imagining the poem that will be written about him after he dies, the elegy written for him. But Milton writes the poem about him while he's alive. And the poem that he writes, in a sense, is about elegy as a way of getting beyond elegy. Elegy as a way of getting beyond grief um, to a description of the world as it is, to a kind of clear-sightedness. The poem begins with clear-sightedness. It's empty. They're just these berries. And it ends with clear-sightedness the clear-sightedness of Milton himself. And the elegy itself is dallying with false surmise and fondly dreaming, and even dreaming that Lycidas is the genius of the shore. 
but we get back to clarity at the end. And the poem is a kind of achieved clarity, which is the end of mourning. It sees the world as it is. Um, and the shepherd himself seems to achieve that clarity when he stops singing, when he can end the elegy. But Milton doesn't stop singing. He has another eight lines. And those eight lines are about the clarity that we have come to by the end, when the shepherd has um, successfully concluded his mourning. Um, it's, a, it's a hard and subtle poem, um, and a puzzling and inscrutable one in a whole lot of ways. Um, very hard to see where and how ironic it is. Uh, very hard to see um, what Milton wanted, where the ironies are, ironies that Milton is experiencing, and where the ironies are ironies that he wants to communicate. That is, where the ironies are ironies that are part of his of his intention and his plan. Um, but it's a great elegy, but it's also um, a poem about elegy and a poem showing a poet who's understanding how to write a great elegy and um, wanting to make that understanding clear. All right, Comus, quickly, did you like it? Yes. <laughs> Say more. You really liked it. I do. I like Comus. It's fun. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know. I, I, I like... I think it reads well. I, I think I like... Um, well, I like other things of Milton's better, but... Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just sort of fun to read. <laughs> I don't know. Um, ben? When he talks about the cynic tub, is it still a time when they'd be talking about, like, the philosophy like Diogenes? Yes, that's exactly what he's talking about. Um, so, so can you explain that to people? Well, all I know is that Diogenes was just... Yeah, so Diogenes is a Greek philosopher and a nihilist, um, and he um, he was in the time of Zeno and Parmenides, um, and he was famous for having contempt for all the ideals of anyone. Um, he and his school were called the Cynics because kunos <clears throat> means dog in Greek, and they were called the dog-like philosophers because they had contempt for human civilization, and they lived like dogs. Um, so Diogenes, um, this apparently isn't true, but um, a later writer said that um, he was so uninterested in any kind of human um, uh, civilized behavior that he, was, he went around naked, and when people complained about this, he said, fine, I'll put a barrel around me. Um, so all those cartoon images um, of, people, of, of cynics in barrels comes out of Diogenes, and that's what um, Milton is referring to, or what... Um, the elder brother is referring to. Um, and um, he um, was also famous, and this he did do, um, for carrying a lamp around um, in daytime. Um, he had a lit oil lamp around, and he carried it, and people would say, why are you doing that? And he would say, I'm looking, anyone know? Looking for an honest man. Um, so he was, he was a gadfly before Socrates was. Um, and um, he was also famous for refuting Zeno, who said that motion is impossible because of Achilles and the tortoise. Do people know about this? Or an arrow can never get to its destination because 
first it has to get halfway there, but before it gets halfway there, it's got it. Yeah. Um, so Zeno proved Zeno had a philosophical disputation with Diogenes about this, and he said, "See, so there can't be any motion. Refute that." And Diogenes walked across the room and said, "I've just refuted it." Um, so that was regarded as cynical too. Um, but yeah, so that's a reference to Diogenes. Um, can you think of Comus as a Spencerian poem? The answer to this is an easy one. Yes. yes. All right, good. Chastity All right. plays a major role in this poem. Yeah, chastity, temperance. Mm -hmm. Virtue. Sorry? Virtue ends with him talking about virtue. Uh-huh. Virtue in general and, and um, how heaven, if virtue can't rise by itself, which of course it can, then heaven will stoop to it. Um, the wording, like Wilhelm. <coughs> Wilhelm, <coughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, There's one that, wording. I can't remember if it was in Comus or if it was in one of the other poems, but that had the the Y in front of it to like the Yeah, that's, eclat, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, in Lallegro. Yeah, it's um, in Lallegro. Yeah. What? It also has that mixture of uh, mythologies. Yeah. The, that we had with uh, Spencer. Yeah, the exactly. British line as well as the, the um, Homer. Right, exactly. No killing. No, no killing. Where's Talus? When yes! Talus with his iron flail. I miss Talus. Yeah. Was anyone on Comus' side? Yes, me. Why? <laughs> because he's just, you know, he is more true to the people who bred him than Sabrina is. How weird is it? that a spirit was thrown into a river by her stepmother or she committed suicide, whichever one, for both adulterous parents should be now the spirit of justice ridiculous. <laughs> it's okay. true. Yes. You have a good point. Mm. Um, yeah, then. No, I, I kind of feel like the problem, and I mean, part of it is just, I guess, coming in with a, a modern perspective, um, is that, you know, I felt like I wanted to agree with Comus, um, but didn't think his arguments stood enough on their own. Uh -huh. You know, I, um, you know I, I thought that was kind of unusual for Milton, particularly, because, you know, reading Paradise Lost, the devil is such um, a heroic figure and such... And such well, th figure. remember, this is 30 years earlier. Right, okay. But still, I mean... Um, you're you there's there's sort of a, it feels comparatively just incredibly weak uh, to the point that it uh, next to the lady the attendant spirit you know the brother Sabrina it, it doesn't seem to stand a chance and it it seems for the reader's sake kind of it you know when I was going through it you know and reading what what he had to say I was sort of like yeah okay I guess I I agree um, and then reading his readings it's like well I don't necessarily agree, but it's a much better version of the argument. Well, Sabrina's or the ladies? I mean, the ladies. The ladies, not, yeah. 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 Now, she has... Um, it, part of what's going on... We'll, we'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, but Paradise Lost, begin. <coughs> Paradise Lost for tomorrow, book one, at least. Um, but part of what um, is happening here is that Milton is staging... Um, we talked about this yesterday, but stage, I mean, Monday, a, a pretty powerful, um, giving the lady a pretty powerful context for her, for her rebuke of comas. And um, 
it's really worth feeling the different, um, it's like Lycidas this way, that there's, on the one hand, extraordinarily rich language, which Comus uses. That rich language is not going to be satanic language um, in Paradise Lost. Satan's language, at least when he's speaking to himself, is um, not rich. It's, it's austere. Um, but the rich language is also the language of the shepherd in Lycidas, the catalog of flowers. And then there's, that's, that's framed and juxtaposed to austere language. And the austere language is, is what, what Milton calls sober and serious language. In Comus, that's the language of the lady. Mm-hmm. She doesn't use any of the beautiful language that Comus does. And Milton is very interested in beauty versus austerity. Um, and that's going to be, we saw it in Lycidas, you see it to some extent in L'Allegro and Il Penseroso, although Il Penseroso isn't that austere, not austere at all really. Um, but we'll certainly see it in Paradise Lost, and then we'll also see it again in Paradise Regained and in Samson. Um, but that's a first thing to see. We'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. One other thing to see, though, just to put a marker down, is you can't really, if you're a decent human being, like Comus when he paralyzes the lady and well, seeks to rape her. Um, but the question is, is that um, a kind of plot intervention on Milton's part? Um, does that feel right? That is, does it feel like, oh, that's what Comus was all the time? Or is it the kind of thing that you sometimes have to do, TV writers have to do this all the time, is they have to change someone's character in order to make the plot go the way they want it to go? Um, and I think it's the second. Mm-hmm. And um, it's at least worthwhile considering the extent to which it's a second. Okay, someone cop to this uh, um, unsigned quiz. I don't know where it went. Here are your quizzes. Oh, no, these, ah, that's why. Yes, so someone cop to this. Here, pass it around. I was going to say that the most powerful convincing argument for the lady was when Comus suddenly felt this weird, oh, I can feel that this power behind your words was, you know. Yeah. It's yours. Okay. That's more convincing, really. Comus's opening words are pretty fantastic. (laughs) Ravishment. Yeah. That he has that sudden feeling that she was right or that she had a, a hidden power. <laughs> 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 